I'm Athena. This is Space Talk. Um, I'm so excited to be doing this podcast. Uh, and I'm really happy all of you are here too. Um, as you can tell by the name Space Talk, the goal here is to just like talk everything space from having special guests on to having you all on, my listeners, um, which by the way, some of you might have already tried the function, which is to be a caller. So something I really encourage all of you to do is if you ever have a question about something or you want to bring something up or maybe like, you know, teach me something or, or our fellow listeners, I, re I really um, encourage you to click the call in button and I'd love to have a conversation with you. Um, this The format of this podcast is going to be super fun, super casual, but at the same time, I've got some structure to it. That's because a big goal of mine for this podcast is to have more people um, go outside and do their own observations, become stargazers, look up at the night sky and maybe record their own observations, their own data, maybe become citizen scientists, which is a really, really cool thing that you can do just in your own backyard if you have a telescope, um, either recording um, observations like doing astrophotography or going to nasa.gov and processing your own images, booking out time to use the telescopes that are available through NASA. And um, maybe you can make a discovery of an exoplanet. Like it's so possible. The night sky is free to us. And I just want to encourage more people to um, observe it and to go out and look at it. So my method of doing that is by telling you guys about weekly events that you can catch. So I'm going to jump into that because that's something I'm really, really excited about uh, because we have some really gorgeous planetary alignments this week. Starting with on December 3rd, Venus, the planet Venus, reaches its highest altitude in the night sky. Now, some of you have probably already seen Venus at night. It's usually the first bright object that we see that we probably think is a star just after sunset. In fact, its nickname is the evening star. And that's because it's even when the sun might still be out and it's starting to just go past our horizon and begin to set, you can see Venus really bright, really bold. And in fact, it's not twinkling, which is super, super cool. The reason for that is because it's a planet and it's located closer to us than the stars that we see in our sky. So something exciting about Venus is it reaches a really high altitude. In fact, it comes really close to something known as the zenith. This, is, this brings us to now the part of the podcast that I'm going to introduce a new word each week. It's different terminology used in the field of astronomy and just space industry in general. We'll definitely get into to rocket science and rocket launches as well. But we're going to start off with astronomy because that's my field of expertise. That's, that's my background. Um, I, I consider myself an astronomer. I spent a few years in university doing research, uh, which we'll get into that in the future. Um, but to give you a little background, it's on protoplanetary disks. I like to call PROPLIDS. That is the acronym. And it's basically baby solar systems. Um, our very own solar system went through this stage known as a PROPLID. And the reason I chose that, that area of study when I was in undergrad was because I felt like that was sort of the first step to seeing the very birth of planets that people can live on. Maybe, maybe other, other alien life, maybe other bacteria or microbes, and maybe advanced intelligent life that we just haven't come in contact yet. 
So I think that some of the biggest mysteries of the universe lie within those stages of planetary formation. So, um, so that's what I chose when I was in university. Um, I absolutely love this stuff. I knew I wanted to pursue astrophysics since I was 11 years old and I got a book of images um, taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. And they are so phenomenal. Um, and so that is a little brief history of my story. Um, and I'd love to hear some of your stories. So if you ever, again, want to come on and just, you know, call on in into um, this podcast, into Space Talk, call in into Space Talk, um, do it. Click the button below and I'd love to hear your story about why you think space is cool. So moving further into, um, okay, into astronomy, word of the week, zenith is the highest point directly overhead of the observer. So if you're outside stargazing in your backyard, whatever is directly overhead, if you're just standing still and you tilt your head all the way up to the sky, that right there is the zenith. That is your 90 degree point. And well, I'm going to mention degrees a lot when it comes to stargazing tips. So that's something. Um, I'm going to pause right here because I see that we have a caller and I really would love to test out this feature. So Olivia, I am going to add you. Hi, Hi can you hear me? Olivia. I hear hello. you. Hello. Hello. You're doing great. Sorry. So I live in New York City, which is not ideal mm -hmm. stargazing conditions, obviously. So like what advice do you have for people that like are interested in sort of getting more involved, more knowledgeable that are like wanting to do this, but perhaps don't live in the ideal conditions for it? such a great question. Um, well, first off in New York City, I highly encourage you to go to uh, Columbia University. They have a, an astronomy outreach program and um, you don't have to like join the program or anything. In fact, you could actually just go to the university, check out their website. And um, I hope they started it again. I know they paused it for COVID for a bit, but once a month they have um, a featured researcher who would give a lecture on what their research is. It's maybe about a 20 minute lecture. And then afterwards, everyone goes to the roof of the building at Columbia University, and there are tons of telescopes set up. And so, so even cool. though, oh my gosh, it's so, so cool. I, I really feel like you should go. I think you would love it. You can see like the rings of Saturn. You could check out the moons of Jupiter. And it's so cool because you're with a bunch of different people, all different ages and walks of life. And you're just up on the roof at Columbia University in the middle of New York City looking at the sky. It's so cool. Oh my gosh, I'm writing it down right now, going <laughs> yeah. as soon as possible. <laughs> Definitely try that, astronomy outreach. Um, so okay. Amazing. Oh, thank you, Athena. Yeah, thank you, Olivia. Awesome. Oh, this was so great. So yeah, if anyone else wants to join um, and, uh, and ask a question, that, that was such a great sample of how the feature works. That made me super excited. Um, I, already, I already am obsessed with this app. Um, so yeah, there's so many cool things out there. And um, for also another addressing, another thing to address for that question about um, just if you have light pollution, if you're in a very like light polluted city or you aren't near a high altitude, um, which, by the way, if you are near a hill or a higher altitude, it's a really good idea to go up on a higher altitude because you're able to maybe get above where some of the trees or the buildings are so that um, those that don't obstruct your view when you're trying to look at lower objects. Um, an example is I was trying to look for a comet, Comet Neowise, which was visible last summer. And I was in New York City and just was going back and forth um, to all these different locations trying to locate it. But it was 
pretty low on the horizon. What that just means is it's really close to where the ground level is. So the horizon, which is typically where the sky will meet your, your ground, ground vision. Sometimes you'll usually see trees or buildings in the way. Um, unless you're really on flat land, then you'll actually just see where the ground meets the sky, which is pretty cool. Um, so other tips, though, I would say for um, light pollution, if you do get a telescope, there are filters, light pollution filters that exist. Um, I found them because I, um, I have a few different transmission members um, for my email subscription, and I put together an astronomer shopping list for them. And I found this really cool light pollution filter. It's a kind of pink looking filter. And um, you can always add that to a telescope, which helps filter out that light, light pollution. Um, so moving into other astronomical events for this week. Um, so on December 4th, we have two really cool things. One of them is you have a really gorgeous alignment between three planets, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn. And this will be about 45 minutes after sunset. So as the sky is starting to darken uh, beyond dusk and really going into now like darker, darker sky. Um, so I'd say about 45 minutes after sunset local time. So wherever you're located and you're going to want to be facing the southeast direction. So facing southeast, you'll probably first recognize Jupiter um, because it's going to be pretty high up. It'll be uh, just about, say, remember when I was, oh, actually, I think I was on mute when I mentioned this, but um, our, your fist from, if you hold it out straight in front of you and you lengthen your arm from the base of your finger knuckle to the top of the knuckle that connects to the rest of your hands. So you're holding your fist. That's about 10 degrees in length. So when you hold it out right at the horizon, the top of your fist is a 10 degree mark. And then if you start stacking your fist on top of each other, moving higher up to the sky toward where the zenith is, so directly overhead, that's 10 degrees, 20 degrees, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and finally 90 degrees is directly overhead. So that being said, Jupiter is going to be located at about 45 degrees above the horizon. So hold out four of your fists, and then about half of your fist is going to be right where Jupiter is, which will be the starting point of the planetary alignment. Just under Jupiter will be Saturn moving further east. And then under that will be Venus. So it's going to be really, really cool. Like I mentioned, about 45 minutes after sunset. I hope you get to catch that, that alignment. And then lastly, we have on December 4th is a total solar eclipse. The only thing is if you're in the United States, you won't be able to catch it. So for any of my listeners in Antarctica or Southern Africa or, Southern, or the Southern Atlantic, you will be able to catch um, this eclipse. So uh, just let me know if you are there, but I believe um, everyone that is here, I do know. And so I think we're all based in the US. So if you do end up going out there, uh, let me know and I will give you details of how you can see the solar eclipse. Um, otherwise, December 4th, keep, keep that in mind for at least the planetary alignment. The last thing is we do still have Mars visible. So that planet, really gorgeous red planet, you'll be able to see. And what's really cool is you could see all these without a telescope. These planets are so bright that um, you, should, you should be able to see them without any binoculars or any type of um, enhancement optically. So Mars is going to be really cool. It's going to be visible in the early morning sky. So you're going to want to face your southeast horizon, and it's at a magnitude of about 1.6. 
Now, the magnitude scale is really interesting. I'm going to save that for episode two because um, I think it would be a lot easier to compare and contrast your absolute and apparent magnitude. Um, but yeah, so just, just to keep in mind, at a magnitude of 1.6, you will be able to see that with your eyes. It's going to be um, slightly dimmer than Venus, uh, but you will be able to see it yeah, well, once, once you go outside, it's going to be pretty prominent. Um, look out for something that looks kind of reddish in tint. Um, that will be Mars. So that is as far as your first week for space history, so for, for um, busy celestial events. So I hope that all of you guys get to go outside and explore these objects. I think it's going to be really, really cool to see. Um, I think as far as everything with when it comes to observing, um, if you don't have a telescope or you don't have binoculars, there is still so much you can see. But when we start to get into deep sky objects like galaxies and globular clusters or just star clusters, globular clusters are bigger and older star clusters. So always keep that in mind whenever I use that word. It's kind of a crazy word, globular. Um, and then we have open star clusters, which are usually younger stars, and there's usually just a few of them. So on a scale of about between seven to maybe 30 of them, whereas globular clusters are in the thousands and, and tens of thousands of stars, and they're really old. So if you ever get a telescope to see one, it's a very brilliant, beautiful view. So for the other thing I was thinking about getting into for this podcast um, is also sharing some historical facts. Um, I don't know if anyone out there is a history buff or if you like history, um, but I am definitely a big fan of anything that has to do with space and space history. And I did just see an emoji come through, which was super cool. So I'm going to jump into the first week of space history for December. And if you have any questions about any of these space missions, um, please do jump in as a caller and ask me. This is something that I'm really excited about um, doing this format of content because we can actually go into details now about a lot of these space missions um, that oftentimes we're constrained by when we come to just maybe talking about it very quickly with our friends or making a short video on. So December 2nd in 1971, was when the USSR Mars 3 spacecraft made a soft landing on Mars, as opposed to a hard landing. So the soft landing is when it's first starting to land and arrive to the planet before it actually deploys and settles down and brings out all of its instruments. It is the first step of it arriving to the planet. So um, the USSR Mars 3 spacecraft, um, that is December 2nd, 1971, was when it arrived to Mars. And that on December 2nd in 1993 was the very first surfacing mission of the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, keep this in mind. I'm, I mentioned the Hubble Space Telescope before when I said that that was a big inspiration for me to pursue the field of astronomy. And this telescope is what processed probably any picture you might have seen of galaxies or nebulae, plural form of nebula, so big uh, interstellar dust clouds. Any picture you've seen was probably taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, and so what's really funny is when it launched, maybe not funny because it cost about $1.5 billion. Um, but when it launched, the images were coming back horribly, like absolutely 
blurry and nothing really fancy. It was out of focus. And so it actually needed a ton of servicing missions, which was quite stressful for NASA at the time. However, because of the corrections that they had to make to the telescope and the optics, and basically it was the mirror inside, it was slightly too flat. It had to be more curved. We'll get into that in another time, unless you guys have questions about that. But in order to take really sharp images um, with a telescope of the sky, you really need strong, polished mirrors and really like a perfect type of curvature. And so when they launched the Hubble telescope, it was slightly too flat. So they had to try and curve it. They even tried to put in, get this corrective lenses, like a pair of glasses on the mirror, which was like really funny. Um, but it didn't work. Eventually they figured out the right technology to try and fix it, which had to do with the processing of, of the um, images when it reflected off of the mirror and it gathered all that information from space. And when they did that, they were actually able to then use that technology in the medical field. But we'll, we'll get into that um, another time if, you, if you'd like, if you guys think that that's cool. Um, but it ended up being a really important spinoff for NASA because it ended up being used in the medical field. Um, I'll just tell you guys, it was used to, to actually detect breast cancer, early signs of it much sooner on. And um, it, it was such a, a groundbreaking um monumental moment for for space exploration for the space industry um, because here this is really expensive telescope launches space and um you know it, it ended up not being like really in good use at first and in turn from fixing it and correcting it we we're able to then use that technology for here on earth to save so many people's lives and um also probably save quite a lot of money too um in the medical industry so December 2nd, 1993 was the very first servicing mission to the Hubble, uh, of the Hubble Space Telescope, which, by the way, was done in space while the telescope was in orbit <laughs> around Earth. So they had to fly the space shuttle to it. This was a spatial endeavor at the time, which I believe is in California. So if anyone wants to go to L.A. and see the space shuttle, it's at the California Science Center. And they had to fly the shuttle up to it. And then astronauts had to climb out of the space shuttle and then correct and like do operations and service and just, yeah, corrections and, and uh, repairs to the telescope, which is pretty crazy to think about. Moving into December 3rd, 1973, Pioneer 10 made a flyby of Jupiter, becoming the first spacecraft to do that. Before Pioneer 10, this, this spacecraft, nothing had flown past Jupiter before. Nothing had gone this far in the solar system. So this was a huge deal for the space mission and for, for NASA. For the Imagine being an engineer who made this. And this was like your very first time um, like seeing something that you made go this far in the solar system, fly by, by Jupiter. Like, I mean, that's just nuts. Like make it all the way out to the gas planets. So Jupiter, just to give you some reference, just beyond Mars and beyond the asteroid belt. So there's a the, most of the time when we see um, when meteors come and, and crash land on Earth, they pass through uh, our atmosphere. And, and, you know, once they get past the atmosphere and crash land on Earth, they become the term changes to meteorite. In case anyone didn't know that. Um, and 
when that happens, most likely these space rocks came from the asteroid belt, which is between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter. So this Pioneer 10, this spacecraft, had to get past all these flying rocks, which is just, yeah, again, it's, it's really incredible to think about. Um, so if you are an engineer or you want to be an engineer and work on spacecraft that are just going to, to new, um, new frontiers in space, um, I encourage you to, to follow that. I think that'd be really cool. Moving into December 5th in 1751, going way back to 1751, the Tarantula, the tarantula Nebula was discovered by Nicolas Louise de la Calle. The Tarantula Nebula is also known as NGC 2070. Um, now, for reference, uh, you might hear me say these things a lot. Uh, whenever I talk about um, a deep sky object, they'll either be called M and then some number, or that stands for messier, like like messier, not so much like, oh, like, you know, like Sally is messier than Joe. Uh, that's kind of the word you could think of, but it's actually named after a person, an astronomer named Charles Messier. And he was the first to actually catalog a bunch of deep sky objects. And it's kind of cool because he originally cataloged these deep sky objects. I mean, the name is literally deep sky because they're really, really deep and far away from us in the universe. But he cataloged them and he called them, get this, objects to avoid. And he called them objects to avoid because uh, he was a comet hunter. Charles Messier, French astronomer, was a comet hunter. He didn't want to be bothered with these other fuzzy things in this night sky that were basically hindering and causing problems for his own research. So he called them objects to avoid. And it wasn't until later on that he realized, oh my goodness, these are, these are galaxies, sorry, he didn't realize they were galaxies yet. He thought they were nebulae. He realized they were nebulae. Some of them were, uh, nebulae are regions in space where there's a lot of dust, interstellar dust, the big clouds, and they are made up of different material and gases that come from other stars. Sometimes when a star dies, it can explode as a supernova. Hence, releasing all of its material into space. And this eventually can turn into a nebula. Sometimes a star will die like our sun. When our sun dies, it's going to slowly expand, cooling down, getting colder and colder into a red giant star. And when it dies, it doesn't die by collapsing. Only some stars die by collapsing and exploding. Our sun will probably die by just slowly cooling off and shedding its outer layers little by little until it expands into a really kind of sparkly, colorful, and cold dust cloud. And that is what a nebula is. And so um, what was my point around this? So a Messier, <laughs> Charles Messier realized that a lot of these were nebulae, and some of them were even star clusters. And then years later, even now, when new objects are being discovered, like t- the Tarantula Nebula, they get the name NGC, and then a number, 2070. NGC stands for New General Catalog. And this is, again, another catalog of objects, but they're not Messier objects because they were discovered after, well, Charles Messier died. And after 
um, his whole, uh, his whole catalog had already been, been wrapped up and it's now like generations later. And so they are now called the NGC. And actually, let me just double check and make sure that's new general, it's new general catalog. Yep. Okay. I was right. Just want to make sure it wasn't new generation catalog. Um, helpful to have some quick, easy Google thing near me, but new general catalog. Um, so going into our very last event for this week for space history is December 5th in 2014 was when NASA launched the Orion capsule. Now the Orion capsule, this was actually a test to try and essentially figure out, um, just how much, uh, cargo it can carry and to see if it can carry human life into our solar system. So the Orion capsule is something that's part of right now um, the Artemis program or the SLS, Space Launch System. Very massive rocket with the goal of going to the moon, returning to the moon. And um, this is something that's still being in the works, uh, but something else that you might have heard of at the same time that the Orion capsule um, test launch was happening is also when Dragon was happening. Now, Dragon, you might think, why are we talking about dragons? What are you talking about? But if you're in, um, you know, reading, if you read up on a lot of space literature, you might already have heard this before, the Dragon capsule, which is through SpaceX. This has launched so many humans already. I believe we just had our, our crew four mission. So our, the, the fourth mission of people launching to space on SpaceX's Dragon capsule. To give you a little bit of a breakdown, the capsule sits on top of the rocket. The rocket launches the capsule out of Earth's atmosphere. And then the rocket separates from the capsule. The people are in the capsule. The rocket then returns to Earth and lands, which is so cool and monumental. And then the capsule will then stay in space. And either it'll orbit around the Earth, which there was a mission through St. Jude's Children's Hospital that did this. And actually, I feel super honored to say that one of my friends was actually the co-pilot of that mission, Dr. Cyan Proctor. And it was super incredible. So, so exciting. They orbited around the Earth for three days. The other thing that the uh, capsule is used for is to dock on the International Space Station. And so this is what's brought up quite a lot of um, astronauts to the International Space Station. And what's really, really cool and exciting about this is um, that we've had a ton of crew that have gone up launching off of soil from the U.S., United States soil. This was a huge deal because I don't know if you guys know, but when we were launching astronauts from the United States to the International Space Station, they were launching through the Russian Soyuz capsule. It costs about $81 million per seat per direction. So it wouldn't be round trip. It'd be a one way, $81 million one way on the Soyuz capsule to launch out of Kazakhstan off of planet earth to the international space station. And then our astronauts would stay on the space station and then would have to do a return mission crash landing in the waters just bordering Kazakhstan. And, um, that was, you know, of course, you know, an option and useful, but we hadn't launched our own astronauts from the United States until um, after the space shuttle program had already ended, which was in 2011. And so this was super exciting when SpaceX came around and did this. 
Um, and so, of course, there are other ways that um, are, are being explored through other space companies to do this. Um, maybe some of you heard about Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, um, who created Blue Origin. And Blue Origin is launching people to space, um, such as William Shatner, which you might have heard about recently, or Wally Funk. Um, and it's it's so, so incredible what's going on. So that is a little bit of a digression on my part uh, for our, the final uh, task or the final thing of space history for this week, which is I got in December 5th in 2014 was when NASA launched the Orion capsule. Um, and that was used to, to try and test carrying human life into the other parts of the solar system. So I always like to end with the moon phase of this week. So we have a new moon happening this week, December 4th at about 2.43 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I always like to remind everyone that during the new moon is when you can catch the Milky Way galaxy overhead. So if you've never seen the Milky Way, I highly encourage you to go out to a dark sky observer or observing spot. So maybe a, a park somewhere, uh, maybe like um, a state park and go around December 4th. And during the new moon, you'll be able to catch the Milky Way stretched across overhead. It usually rises pretty late. So close to 11 p.m. Uh, local time. So depending on where you are, you want to wait a few hours after sunset. But it really becomes prominent at around 2 o'clock in the morning, around 1 to 2 a.m. when it gets just dark enough and just enough stars have, have risen in the sky and enough of those winter constellations. It is so, so beautiful. And most likely you'll be able to see some meteors or shooting stars as some, some, of, some, uh, some of us might remember from childhood, um, like the, the wish upon a shooting star. Um, but that is quite visible as well when you see the Milky Way overhead. So I hope that some of this information has encouraged you to maybe go out into your backyard and do some stargazing this week. Again, so many, so many cool events to look forward to. And um, this has just been so much fun, uh, starting with the first episode of Space Talk. Every week, I'm going to start off with different must-see celestial events, things you can catch in the night sky with a telescope and without a telescope. And depending on what's visible, we will have some deep sky objects to go over as well. So galaxies and nebulae and globular clusters, maybe even a meteor shower or an eclipse. Then we'll also get into space history, so some historical events that have happened each week, and of course, learning some new vocabulary, expanding our vocabulary in the space industry, learning different terms. So next week, um, I definitely want to go over the difference between apparent and absolute magnitude, as that will be very, very helpful moving forward with some of um, these, uh, some, some more podcast episodes, um, as I will be getting a lot more into kind of the, the more technical side of, of what you can observe at night, um, different tips and understanding where things are positioned. Because follow me along in this, this uh, kind of thought experiment right now. If for some reason, hopefully this doesn't happen, but for some reason the city's blackout and it's completely dark and you don't have GPS, you don't have satellite, you don't even have access to any technology, how are you going to navigate? Now, sure, you'll be able to get around your neighborhood, maybe even your town or your city, because it's familiar to you. But this is how humans used to navigate the Earth for centuries. They used to use the night sky. 
knowing where they are based on the positions of the stars and the planets and, of course, our moon. And so I think it's really important to have this, this tool overall. Um, also just, too, because the perspective shift is so astonishing and phenomenal to look up and see how expansive the sky is and see how massive our universe is. I think it really can shift our perspective with maybe what we go through on a daily basis, um, which could be really good, or sometimes it can be tough. But I think that um, looking up at the night sky can really start to bring so much more awe and wonder and beauty into our lives. And maybe even the way that we, we look at each other, maybe our loved ones, our friends, our family, um, or maybe someone brand new, like a stranger on the street. So um, that is, that's, that's about everything I had planned for episode one. Uh, thank you all so much for being here again. Um, I will definitely go live a few more times this week. That'll be a little bit more casual conversation. I'd love to have some of you uh, just call in and join um, Space Talk. And we can, we can go into some, instead of saying rabbit holes, I'll say a black hole. Let's go, let's, let's go deep dive into, into a black hole conversation and talk about something cool and something spacey. So um, that's that. Uh, that's about everything that I have to share. Uh, once again, thank you all so much for being here. And I hope that you all look up at the night sky tonight. And until next time, add Astra to the stars. Thank you. Bye.